Well, if you have a Bible, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're down and we're going to be in verse 19 is where we're going to start. So we only have about five chapters left of 2 Samuel. So we should be finishing this up sometime around uh, Holy Week, Easter, and and, um, moving on, I think, to the book of Titus after that. We'll take a short New Testament breather. (laughs) And then before we get into some of the topics of the summer. Um, So here we're in the midst of uh, Absalom's rebellion. His army has been defeated. He himself has died, and David is waiting for the news. So before we begin, let us together pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for your ever-present love and grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive instruction from you, comfort from you that we would know you better, that we would know ourselves better, that we would be more faithful to you, that we would be healed, that we would be holy, Lord, and that we would be utterly devoted to you. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son. Amen. Now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we live in what some people call the emoji world. The emoji world. We live in a world of self-expression. Most of the communication that uh, people who know each other on on any intimate level, most of the communication that they have on a regular basis is through like buttons or heart buttons or care buttons or, wow, what is this button? I wish they would add a vomit button to Facebook, but that's another story for another day. And how often, and this is something I I can't get over, do you text people and what you get back is an emoji face? Right? We, we, we don't longer express ourselves with words as much as we express ourselves with emojis. And there's even this awful movie called The Emoji Movie. Um, I don't watch it. It's awful. <laughs> I just can't even describe how awful it is. But, it, but it's a sign of the times. We live in an emoji world. We quickly, even reflexively, lend our smiley, our sad, our cry, our surprised, mad faces via text or comment We deem it better to express any and all emotions all the time rather than hold back and be fake, right? If if an authentic person goes onto Facebook right now and makes some vague statement so that everyone knows exactly how they feel without actually knowing anything about what's going on in the person's life. You know how often that happens? How often does that happen? And And then you want to say, well, what's the matter? Right? That's what the person wants you to do. We are people who are constantly expressing ourselves to one another about our feelings. Now, our unfiltered emotional life can, and some say should, extend to all persons, spouses, parents, even strangers. Um, My kids laugh. I I am a product of my generation. Uh, I hardly go anywhere without telling strangers what I think about what's happening to us. My kids think this is hilarious. right? I'll be at the grocery store and be like, man, there's a lot of choices, isn't there? And some person next to me is... Like, I'm really delighted to be here. How are you? (laughs) And this is something that my kids think is crazy because I I will talk to any random stranger at any point. And generally what I like to do is express how I feel about what's going on to both of us at the moment, right? I think this somehow makes me a more authentic person. I don't know. I think if you know me now, you're going to probably avoid me at the grocery store because when I it's even worse when I see people I know, right? I I will accost strangers with my emotions. If I run into someone I know, it's even worse. Now, it's very popular. There, there are spiritual books that I have read um, where in order to be a prophet, you have to first learn what it means to be angry with God. Uh, there are people who say, you know, you should express yourself to God. He wants to hear from his children. And so even if you go in the locked room and you're screaming at him, what you're doing is you're communicating your feelings, which God desperately needs to know. You can't possibly know unless you tell him how you feel. Now, to repress them to repress our emotions in in modern culture is to repress self. Now, I think the Lord Jesus had something to say about that. Now, some resist this over-emotional modern world by withdrawing into their fortress of solitude with Superman and and don't express any emotions ever. Now, I've seen this. This is just as big a problem as people who can't stop telling me their emotions are people who never tell you your emotions until what they do is they totally blow their lid like like a a shaken-up soda can, right? There are those people. There's no emotion. That stoic guy who has nothing to say about anything, nothing to share about anything until he's had enough, 
Okay. And then he comes overflowing. This is what happens to people who are withdrawing from this overly emotional world. And so what you have are people who won't stop talking about their feelings, and it's bad, or people who never talk about their feelings, and it's also bad. Now, it hasn't always been this way. C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Abolition of Man, said that men, ancient men, such as Plato and Aristotle and Augustine, reasoned that our emotional responses, rather than being fixed dispositions, could and must be trained. Train your emotions, is what the ancient man would have said. C.S. Lewis wrote, the heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. Okay? It, sh- it can and should obey it. We live in an age not only of excesses in sex and consumption, but in the age of excessive emotion. Excessive emotion. When a man hears that he didn't get the job, the inner well within him should not become one of poison. As a woman receives the news that the test is positive, she will be ruled by her emotions or she will be ruled by her faith. As a tantrum throwing child's cauldron begins to boil over, the child's conscience should instruct her how I am tempted to feel right now is completely out of line. But we live in an age where you should never tell a child that their emotions are out of line. You should never tell your spouse that their emotions are out of line. And God forbid in a counseling situation, a pastor ever tells a person that their emotions are inappropriate. What you're doing right now is inappropriate. No, because modern man says self-expression. Self-expression. How dare you... Not let me be my authentic self. Now, this out-of-line language paraphrases the great scales that the ancients appealed to in order to judge and reprogram their emotions. It's called reality. Okay? Reality should help us figure out what emotion is appropriate. Not the reality we want, not the reality that we thought should have been, not the reality that could have been but wasn't, but the reality as we find it, the reality as it finds us. With this standard in place, emotions could be appropriate or inappropriate, just or unjust, rational or irrational, and therefore must be expressed and repressed accordingly. Okay, what is the appropriate response to the actual reality that is before your eyes? The actual reality at, at your fingertips. There's an appropriate way to respond to it and an inappropriate way to respond to it. Just responding, however, whatever comes out of you, is what modern man wants to say, and it's wickedness. It's wickedness. It's chaos. Now, sadness, for instance, is rightfully expressed when we lose a loved one, but sadness is wrongly expressed when weighed down by envy. It doubles one up in agony at yet another wedding when you remain single. Now, I, I've, I've done enough weddings now. I can tell per, by body language who is the individual who's still single and is very angry about it because nothing makes them angrier than having to attend a yet another friend's wedding. I've seen these people, and, and you recognize them. This is just one example. Now, educators in past eras considered the training of, one, uh, of their pupils' sentiments as a chief part of their job. They weren't there to just instruct them in, uh, in geography and the English grammar. They were there to educate them and how to control, how to govern, and not be governed by their emotions. They taught them how to discriminate the good from the bad and then respond appropriately. Today, suspicious of emotional propaganda, again, we distance ourselves from this and then wonder why some give such free reign to their untutored emotions. Several, several years ago, or two years ago now, what, what was the argument for letting all kinds of people go into the inner city and burn it to the ground? Well, you know, they have no other way to express themselves. They can't express themselves in a court of law, we were told. They can't express themselves at the ballot box because we make them show IDs which is apparently super racist. Okay. Um, they can't express themselves. They've run out of reasonable ways to express themselves. And so what we've done is, lo- is dropped off a load of bricks downtown, and what they're going to go, and they're going to now let everybody know exactly how they feel. And, and on the nightly news, they're like, this is okay, everyone. This is okay. This is fine. It's, a, it's fine. Now, you're not allowed to go to the Capitol building and, and enter the Capitol building in any way, shape, or form and express your feelings. But if you took all of that angst that you had and you went down to the inner city and you started burning some things down there, now that's fine. That's self-expression at its finest. And if, we, if you don't think that this has gotten out of hand, think of the summer of love, they're calling it now. The summer of love 
where all kinds of people gave free reign to their self-expression, destroying private property, destroying the rule of law. This is the age in which we live. And the response to this is not to then become Stoics, to then become these cheerless, laughless, serious people who never are joyous about anything, that never express their emotions in any way. That's not the response that we should be looking for. Now, I th- I, I'm, I'm sure that some of you are wondering, like, I, what? I thought we were doing a sermon series on Samuel. Well, this is just the introduction. In the passage before us today, David gets as close to total destruction as any time in his whole reign. He comes the closest to utter dissolution. He comes the closest to losing everything. He comes the closest to utter and complete rebellion against God. And it's not because of sexual sin. It's not because of murder. It's not because of his failures as a father to raise his children and the fear and admonition of the Lord to to run his household well. That's not what almost does it. It's from a guilt-ridden grief, an emotional implosion of self is what almost gets David to the point of total dissolution. He cannot control his emotion, and that is what, that's the closest he comes to losing everything. Now, moderns, right, I, I, I'm going through this in a Shakespeare class that I'm teaching. I, I'm constantly impressed with how modern people, people's ethics is very different than ancient people's ethics. I don't know about you, but I run into this problem all the time when I read Genesis. I read Genesis, and I think, how do these women convince themselves that letting their husband sleep with their handmaiden is, is better than not having a baby, right? And when I read the Bible, I come into moments like this where I'm like, I do not understand. You tell me how, how it is that it wasn't sexual sin, that it wasn't murder, that it wasn't his role as a dad, but it's when he cannot control his emotions, when he completely denies the reality that God has brought to his doorstep, that is when David almost loses everything? Now, how does that play in modern churches? How does that play in modern culture? Where we are told the most important thing about us is how we feel about it. And we're going to create social media where we don't talk to one another. We simply go on there and tell each other how we feel about one another's whatever that they put on there. David rejects reality. Now remember what happened. He despised God's word before. That's what, that's what God said. He said, you've despised my word. And even there, there was a place for, re- for restoration. There was a place for repentance. Now what David is doing is he's going further than just rejecting God's word. He is rejecting God's reality. And the Christian faith, Christian ethics, is not merely about obeying or not obeying the word of God. It's how we accept or don't accept the reality that he has brought to us. Now, how, how good are you at balancing your emotions when God doesn't just say to do something you don't want to do, but when he actually does things you don't want him to do. Because ethics is not merely about the word of God. It's also about his providence and what he does. And what we're going to see is that David rejects it. He's like, no, this can't happen. This shouldn't have happened. How dare you, God? Now, I want to be careful here because... You know, I, I don't want anyone to ever think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. But several years ago, I did do a sermon on lamentations and the fact that we don't really know how to grieve with people properly. So what I am not saying is that people should not have an emotional expression of any kind ever. That's not what I'm saying. What we must see is that the word of God teaches us how to control our emotions and how to express ourselves in a God-fearing and biblical way. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 2. Jerusalem weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. This is how the book opens, with grief, true grief, true tears, true tears that are not a lie, that are not inappropriate. But how does the book end? The book ends with Lamentations chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. It says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Now the comfort of the lamenter is the throne of God, and the fact that not that he absolutely will relent, 
but the mere possibility that he will relent. Because you are not God, and I am not God. And so even then, we can't say, well, God, you know, it's, as long as you're merciful in the end, and as long as you let up, then I will be comforted. No. <laughs> you know what I'm going to comfort myself with here at the end of this devastating book about the destruction of Jerusalem is the fact that there is a God in heaven and that he sits on his throne and that he might show me mercy. Now that's accepting reality, right? The, the, those people who were thrown into the, the lion's den, what do they say? Well, you know, we might be eaten or we might not. It's really kind of up to God. Either way, I'm not going to abandon him. I'm not going to leave him. I'm going to be faithful to him. And that's what they said when they were going into a lion's den. And that's not what many of us say when we are confronted with aspects of the reality before our eyes, at our fingertips, that we reject. We don't look at the situation and say, well, you know, he might show us mercy. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to leave the one whom I love, the one who sits upon his throne. I'm not going to abandon him. I'm going to look to him, and he might have mercy on me. That is not commonly how we address our lives, is it? Now, Job is always the example here. Job, in chapter 2, verse 9 of his book, says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job, unlike David, wasn't even being punished. He's not being judged. He didn't do anything. Job exists for one purpose and one purpose only, to show forth the glory of God. And God says, God determines for reasons I cannot explain in the book of Job, to do that by absolutely destroying Job. Behold your God. And Job loves God so much that he says, yeah, yep, I mean, what are, what are we going to do? I mean, it's God. Are we, I mean, are we going to receive all the glories? All the good and not the bad? And that is a message for modern Christians. That's a message for modern man. You want me to explain why God does what he does? Uh, you came to the wrong place. But I, what I will tell you is that he sits on his throne and he is righteous and, and, and holy and perfect and beautiful and merciful and kind. And he, he, he is beyond anything that we can possibly conceive as far as goodness goes. And so I would rather he be in charge of these things than anyone else. I will tell you that. And if you believe that, if you hold on to that, then when reality comes, you say, you know what? I don't, this is, wow, this is rough. But what are we going to do? Are we going to accept good and not evil? Are we going to accept, right, receiving a job but not losing a job? Are we going to accept receiving children and, and not losing children? Are we going to accept receiving loved ones and not losing loved ones? Are we going to receive an abundance of cash, an abundance of physical, like material blessing, and not accept from him those times where we go without? And this is what David, through all of these stories, it, it's that. That is what he is for God. And that is why he, he, he hovers over the abyss. And we're waiting to see whether he's going to plunge into it or not. The sins, God will deal with the sins. God will set everything right. God will discipline his children. He will cleanse his children. He will, he will at the, on the last day, show forth how everything was perfectly done. And David, through everything that's occurred to him, never forgot that. It's when he totally abandons that idea, when he forgets God utterly, when he, he doesn't just revile God's word, but he reviles reality itself, that is when it's, he's on dangerous ground. And we are a modern people who talk a great deal about obeying the word of God, and what we don't talk about very much is receiving the reality and our emotional response to what God is actually doing in our lives. We don't want to talk about that. But you can make an entire ministry in this modern world telling women to calm down. You just go around and be like, listen, ladies, calm down. Get a hold of yourselves. Now, husbands, we all know how well that works in our own homes, right? So does anyone want to go with me? Do you guys want to go down to the mall with me? And instead of preaching like the gospel, what we'll do is we'll just go around telling women to get a hold of themselves. 
That, I, yeah, okay. Nobody wants to go? All right. But it's not just the ladies. This is why I let Rachel Jankovic, if you don't know her, she, she, she talks a lot about this. And, and what's funny is ministers like the fact that she talks about this because then we, we feel like we don't have to, right? The lady is talking to the ladies. But it's important from time to time to stand up here and not just tell the men to stop being schlubs, but it's important to tell the ladies to get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. And men, those of you who are the stoic philosophers amongst us, could you show some other emotion besides anger? Okay, if you look in the scripture, if you go through the Psalms, there's a lot of them. And any two or three other ones besides anger would do your family a great deal of good. This is an equal opportunity sermon, okay? I'm just coming up here with a shotgun just going after both sides. We'll call the church the Get a Hold of Yourself Church. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> so now we turn to 2 Samuel. And, and this part is interesting because there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repetition. So I've actually just decided, right while I'm standing here, to just simply read through this entire section. I think the details are pretty salient. It's pretty obvious what's happened. I'm going to get through the whole thing, and then I'll go back and I'll explain from start to finish what's happening, and then come back at the end and talk about emotions and how we ought to govern them, how we ought to train them. So I'm in 2 Samuel, I'm in chapter 18, and I'm going to begin in verse 19 and read all the way through into chapter, I'm sorry, I'm in 18, verse 19, I'm going to go all the way through chapter, into chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. Then Ahamehaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahamehaz, the son of Zadok, and again said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for this news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahamehaz ran, ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof on the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Aamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Aamaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king when his face, with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, It is well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well then with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told, Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal into in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today 
that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And the people came before the king. Now, Ahimeaz, if you don't recall, was actually a messenger. He was the one who brought messages to David from the war council, uh, Hushai and the war council, earlier in in the book. And so what he thinks is that this great victory has come by the hand of God. This is great news. This is fantastic news. This is the best possible news that he could take to David, and he wants to have the honor and the glory of being the one to go to David with the news. Now, Joab here is is wiser, and he knows David better, and he knows that all David cares about is Absalom. That's all he cares about. What is up with Absalom? And so he knows that Amaz is going to get himself into trouble by going and being excessively pleased with the fact that the king's son is dead, which is the only thing the king does not want to hear. He does not want to hear that. He doesn't care about anyone else. He doesn't care about anything else. All he cares about is rather his son is alive or not. Now, how like already, right? How disconnected from reality is David if he thinks he can keep both his throne and his son? You can't keep both. You can't keep both. It's impossible. And so Joab, who's always... Joab is a shifty fellow. He, sa- he says, no, 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 no. D- don't, don't take the news. Don't take the news. We'll have this foreigner do it. Right? We'll have the foreigner do it. Uh, and that'll be better. Because Joab remembers a few times that people brought news <clears throat> and they were slaughtered. Right? They brought news that they thought was good and it wasn't actually good to the ears of David. And David had them put to death. So everybody loves Ahimaaz, and Joab even calls him my son. He's very paternal towards him. He loves him. He doesn't, he doesn't want to put him at risk. But he's an eager young man, and this is what young men are like. Oh, let me, let me, let me, let me. Please, 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 let me push the button on the elevator. And that's how boys are. Can I, can I get, put the debit card? Can I bag the groceries? Can I, right? They're always the ones who want, they, they love being the ones to get to do something. And, the, and, and the, his youthful zeal here in the kingdom of God and this great victory that the Lord has brought to David, he's very eager to be the one to bring the news. But it's funny because Joab says, go to the the foreigner. He says, go and tell the king what you saw. Now that's very interesting because this is again Joab being shifty because right when, when a general goes and gives a report of a battle, what he tells them is how the overall battle went. When a soldier goes and tells you what happened at a battle, what he tells you is what happened or not happened right where his line was. And so there are famous instances of this where Wellington, after um, beating Napoleon, writes this massive report that he sends back to Whitehall. But then you go and you read some letters from soldiers from the victorious side of the English in the midst of the battle, and for them it was a defeat because where they were on the line was total destruction. But the overall army won. So it's interesting that Joab here is, t- is not telling him to go back and give a report of the whole battle. He's going back and s- saying, oh, just tell him what you saw. Because he's trying to be vague. He's trying to put off telling David what really happened as long as possible. So Amaz will not be deterred. He, he does not understand the complexities of what's going on. And so he says, well, I'll do it. So he starts running, and he runs a different direction. He actually takes a longer way, but he runs across a flat plain opposed to this wooded hills that uh, the the Cushite has to run over. And so he actually outruns the guy and gets there first. And so now we're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> we like this guy. What's going to happen to him? Because in beginning, beginning in verse 24, the writer adopts David's point of view. Okay? He's sitting between two gates. The two gates is where um, Absalom had started. Remember, Absalom went down to the two gates and he was judging for Israel and he stole the hearts. So it, it's a reminder of that. It's also a reminder of Eli, who stood at a gate waiting to find out rather the outcome of a battle. He's here in this place waiting for this news, and he understands that one runner is a sign that the battle has gone well. Because if it, the battle has not gone well, what you don't have is one man running back to the castle. You have a scattering of all kinds of people running back to the seawall. 
because they're fleeing from the enemy. And we see here the fact that Joab understood. When David sees the good man, he thinks that the news can be nothing but good. And to David was the good news that Absalom lives. Not that you have won the victory. Because the, the language that they use is actually that the Lord delivered David, which the word is judged. Okay, 1 Samuel 24, 15 says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So, so everyone in the army of David's army says, Okay, God has judged between you and Absalom. God says you are to be king. Your cause is righteous. You are the one who's going to rule. And that's why they're so excited. God has judged between the two of them. But that's not what David cares about. That's not, that's not the good news to him. The good news is not the reality. The good news is a very specific circumstance that David says, this is good news and nothing else is good news. Now, do you, are you ever, <laughs> and I'm not just talking about like watching football. Because we watch football and we're like, man, I sure hope this team wins. And it's going to be bad news unless this team wins. But how often in your own life do you trick yourself into thinking that something is going to happen and it's the best possible thing that can ever happen and if it doesn't happen, it's terrible and God doesn't love me and forget this world that he made, right? David's heart is set on one message. And so he's setting himself up here for a fall. He's setting himself up here for failure. And this is something that we do all the time. We convince ourselves that there's only one decent outcome. There's only one possible kind of news that can be good. And then when the, the opposite happens and we're told about it, it's not, it's our, what would have already been difficult to deal with is twice as hard to deal with now because we set ourselves up for only one possibility. And that's why, right? I, I don't know how many times I, I, I do this myself. I'm like, oh yeah, hey, next Tuesday, that is what's going to happen, right? I learned very early with my kids to be like, sometime in the next 10 years, I will do the thing you were asking me. <laughs> Right? Because if I say, oh, next Tuesday this, we'll, we'll do that, I don't know about you, but my life is so chaotic, I have absolutely no concept of what I might be doing next Tuesday. No idea. And, and then what happens? The little kid says, oh, this, oh this, is, this is the good news. The good news was just given to me by the one who gives good news. And all week they're like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Woo. And then the day comes and you're like, oh, yeah. Um. And then they're twice as crushed. Right? They're twice as crushed if you would have just been like, hey, at some point we'll do it. And then this is my favorite now. It's like, okay, now is the time to do it. And they're like, yay, that's not what I was expecting. This is amazing. <laughs> and you see this kind of behavior in grown-ups, right? Grown-ups think, oh, I did the interview. I'm going to get the job. Right? And, and people start telling you how it's just in the bag. It's only going to happen. And they can't possibly conceive of not getting the job. And then when they don't get the job, it's twice as worse. It's twice as bad. So these two guys come, and you see automatically that Amaz starts to pick up on what's going on. Because he's talking to the king, and he says, this is the good news that happened. You, you've been victorious. God has chosen you. And then he, David ignores all that and says, well, what about Absalom? And Amaz says, oh, well, <laughs> I can see why Joab did not want me to be the person to bring this news. Well, you know what? I saw a commotion, but I'm not really sure what it was. Right? He pivots very quickly. He's actually a very smart guy. He's like, I can tell what I'm not supposed to do right now. The only thing he seems to care about is whether Absalom's alive. And so what I'm going to do is just be like, well, you know, there was a lot of people fighting. That's what I saw. There's a lot of swords. And he's saying, oh, now I'm going to step aside. <laughs> now I'm going to step aside. I'm going to stand here. And now the foreigner gets to come up, and he gets to be the one that delivers the good news. So he also gives almost the exact same message. You are victorious in battle. You have been delivered. You have been chosen. And David's like, eh, I don't care about all that. Tell me about Absalom. And even here, he doesn't come around and say, well, Absalom's dead. No, he says, may all those who rise up against you be like that young man. And David immediately figures out what that means. Now, what's interesting here is the last time David was sitting in the city, waiting to find out about the outcome of a battle, he was waiting to find out that Uriah was murdered. Right? In that particular instance, he didn't care about the other soldiers who were killed in this murder plot. He didn't care about them. He just cared that this one guy was dead. Now, on the flip side, he only cares, he doesn't care about his soldiers, he doesn't care about who's alive or dead, he doesn't care that 20,000 Israelites on Absalom's side died. All he cares about is the death of his own son. And so these messengers come, and they give him the news that he didn't want to hear. 
And what we see immediately is that he loses his mind. He starts violently trembling. He goes up to the upper room all by himself, which, by the way, he's, right, if he's in the second story, he also is suspended between heaven and earth, just like his son was suspended between heaven and earth. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And, so, and he has utterly rejected what God has done and wishes something that is impossible. Oh, that I might die instead of him. That ship has sailed, son. Way back when you were first running around with other people's wives and murdering people, God said, I'm not going to put you to death, but a sword is going to come upon your house. God already said he's not going to do that. And what you're saying is that that, that is what should have happened. So all through this, right, he's moaning and wailing. He doesn't go and do it in private. He goes up to the upper room where everybody's got to come through the gate beneath him. And imagine if you're coming back from a great victory and you're marching in there and you got, you're covered in bandages and you're really hungry and you're like, what is that weeping sound that I hear? And you're like, ah, that's just the king above you. Don't worry about him. Like that would be very disheartening. <laughs> the entire army comes through and... And here's what's happening. So word spreads very, very, very quickly. Okay? His distress is known immediately. He's not even having the grace to do it privately. Okay? And, and I can tell you, this is what a lot of people do. People are like grieved, and you're like, okay, I, I, people should grieve. People should grieve. But how many times do we do the equivalent of going on to the rooftop and doing where everyone can hear us and see us? It's called Facebook, right? I don't know how many times you go on there and you're like, I don't know what's going on in that person's life, but I can tell they want me to ask. And sometimes, you know what, I'm not going to ask because I don't, I don't really want to know, frankly, because I'm not going to get sucked in to all of this kind of weird stuff. Why are you doing this? Why are you lamenting in public? If it's really heartbreaking, go in a private room and cry there. Okay? Don't, don't do it in, as a public display. This is very much like modern people. Modern people do it as publicly as possible. Now, I want to just highlight a number of things here. What Israel has done, Israel has, under David, has strapped on its sword, has gone out into the field, and has slaughtered their cousins. Right? It's Israel fighting Israel. It's family against family. It's, it's like the Civil War in the United States where people who had graduated from West Point together are now shooting at one another across the field. This is not impersonal. This is not like they're not going out and putting down Philistines. And what we're reminded of in this moment is, is another time Israelites strapped on its sword and slaughtered their own people. This is in Exodus chapter 32, verses 27 to 29. And, it's, and Moses said to the Levites, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Because Moses came down off the mountain, and they were worshiping a golden calf. And Moses said, Listen, strap on your swords and slaughter all these rebels. And the Levites were like, Well, we can't possibly do that because those are our brothers and sons. Right? And even in the book of Exodus, you see this principle that is very important in Scripture, throughout Scripture. And that is, who do you love more? Your family or God? Right? Abraham was sent onto the mountaintop to slaughter what? His only son. And what was God trying to prove? Rather, Abraham loved, right? loved God more than his son. Do these Levites love God more than their brothers and sisters? Do the Israelites who went into the field for the sake of... Yahweh and the sake of David, do they love themselves more or do they or do they love God more? And now here the king, the leader of them all, is in the upper room weeping about something he can't change. And, and because why? Because in this moment he loves Absalom more than he loves God. The one thing, God, I didn't want you to do, you did it, and now I'm gonna just bemoan and wail and, and it's and it's grief upon Israel. And you're like, everybody else is out there sacrificing family members for your throne, and you can't even do the same thing. Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Israel has taken its cross up. It's gone into the field, and it has killed 20,000 of its family members in order to, to restore David to his throne. And David, restored to his throne, now reviles those men because they took from him the one thing he thought he couldn't live without. And, and what kind of son is this? Right? This son, like they're, they're putting their necks on the line for a son... Right? They're putting their necks on the line to defeat a son that in an instant would slit David's throat and leave him in, in, in an alleyway, like a cutthroat. Right? He's a son who murdered his, other, his brother. He's, he's a son who burned down Joab's field. He's a son who is a rebel through and through. And here are faithful men willing to sacrifice everything like Abraham, everything like Jesus said to do, taking a sword to their own household because what they love is Yahweh and his anointed. And here is the anointed of the Lord in the upper room crying. It's shameful what he does here. Now, <laughs> right, this is when we're interpreting scripture, we always have to be very careful here. No one is asking anyone to strap on swords and slaughter family members, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But how often, right, how much did your Christianity <laughs> cost you when it came to family members? How often have you had to make decisions between loving God and loving a family member? I know a lot of you, and I know that you have had to make this choice. Am I going to put up with that? Am I going to listen to that? Am I going to condone that? Am I going to eat with this person and act like everything is okay when they hate God? Am I going to act like this is a friend? And I'm I'm going to sit there and I'm going to laugh while they say things that are full of unbelief and, and hostility towards the living God because what I want is to have peace at Thanksgiving. Right? I don't want mom's 4th of July barbecue to get awkward. Well, I'm going to, I mean, I don't mind if my mom's 4th of July barbecue gets awkward, but it took a few years to get there, right? Because I used to be the same. I don't want a lack of peace. I don't want to be the reason we break peace. And then I got to sit there and listen, right, about how abortion is this glorious and beautiful thing. And at some point, you got to be like, listen, am I going to sit here and listen to this? Am I going to sit here and listen to this? Just so that once a year we can all get together and eat hot dogs? Or am I going to say the thing that needs to be said and I'm going to say, hey, if people don't want to come over here while I'm over here, that's their business. I will come here when you got anybody here, but I'm not going to just sit there and just take it all in as if it doesn't matter that we're going to talk about this. How often have you had to choose between a family member and God and how often have you chose the family member? Because we don't, we're not, right? You're not even being called to sacrifice them with a sword. All you've got to do is not put up with their crap. All you've got to do is is say something when they're telling lies. And we can't even do that, right? We're not called to do... This is what we need to understand about the Bible. There are lots of things in other generations that they are called to do because they're more faithful than we are. God is mercifully not asking us to do this because we can't even say, you know what you're saying is a lie. What you're saying is completely, right, you're denying reality by the things that you are saying. Right? Your, your, your daughter is your daughter. It's not a little boy. And I'm not, I'm not going to call her a little boy. I'm not going to say the stupid name that she wants me to use. I'm not going to do it. I know her name. I was there, right, at the baby shower when the kid was born. And I'm not going to deny reality in order to save some kind of face between the two of us. And I think a lot of us are... are, are are doing the check down, right? I'm not saying that you go and you treat these people badly. What I'm saying is that you don't accept their denial of reality because that's what unbelief always wants us to do. It wants us to compromise and say that, oh, you know, it's really, you're just, this is how they feel. This is their authentic self. This is their truth, right? You don't want to upset mom, do you? I can imagine 500,000 things worse than upsetting my poor mother. I love her to death. Don't get me wrong. And as my parents, my parents in my particular case were converted, this got a lot easier. <laughs> it got a lot easier. We, we all agree sometimes it's nice just to get the Christians in the family together so that we don't have to put up with all that nonsense. 
And then there are times where we put on the armor of God and we go into the battlefield together. And that's glorious. But what God always, what, what God wants from us is, is this fundamental choice. Who do you love more? Are you going to accept his reality or not? Are you going to love him more than you love your own family members? Now, Joab, who already was the one who, came, who showed up with a spine and knew what needed to be done and, and had resolved and set his face towards it and did it, he is the one who killed Absalom. He took initiative and did what needed doing. He is now the one who's also going to take it upon his shoulders to speak to the king about his, his denial of God's reality and his, his hatred that he is showing to the people of Israel. Laying aside all formality, treating David at least as an equal, maybe even as an inferior in this moment, because he doesn't say, oh, my beloved king, and lie down at his feet. He goes in there, and he starts talking to him like two guys who have seen a thing or two together, like brothers. And he says, what you are doing is wicked. What you are doing is evil. You are acting like their lives don't matter. You're acting like the only thing that matters is Absalom. And what you're telling us, he says, logical conclusion. You wish we were all dead so that you could have Absalom back. And what he says is, to the point, what he says is hardcore. What he says is straight up the middle. Brother to brother, this is what you are doing. He confronts him in his sin. It's not okay, right? Because what God wants is for us to love him and to love our neighbor. And what you're doing is you're not loving God because you deny his reality. And you're not loving your neighbor because you wish they were all a pile of dead bodies so that you could have your son Absalom back. It's shameful what he is doing. And Joab takes it upon himself to speak truth to power. Speak truth to power. Right? Wives, can you, can you do that to your husbands? Children, can you do that to your parents? Right? What I like here is Joab. Joab's a rough character. But when, it's, when, when the, there's a person in his community who is not acting the way that they are supposed to, when they are acting shamefully, he takes it upon himself to do, to do the thing that must be done. Now, David is the king. David could just simply say, you know what, Joab, you've got a pretty big head, so what I'm going to do is remove it from your shoulders for you. Right? He could just put him to death. But Joab in this moment, he shows his zeal for Israel, his zeal for righteousness, his zeal for the Lord God, his zeal for proper love, true love, right? love according to reality, and enough to stand up to the king. And it works. It works. Now, there are a few lessons here, just a few. One of them is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, what is David showing here? Is he showing a godly sorrow, as the Westminster Confession calls it? Or is he showing us a worldly grief? Right? He, he has a worldly grief. It's bringing death to, to, to Israel. It's bringing death to relationships. It's bringing death to this, this glorious victory in which God should be honored. It, it brings death to all these relationships that he has because he denies the reality that God is governing. Now, if he's upset because what's happened is that he, through his sin, has brought them to this, now that, no, no, that is some grief we can do something with. Right? And grief that leads you to just bemoaning reality, to expressing yourself unfettered in a way that is the opposite of what you should be doing in this particular circumstance. If, what, what we need to understand is that there is a kind of grief that when properly expressed causes us to repent, causes us to remember God, causes us to look to him, causes us to remember that we are but mere creatures, causes us to remember that the terrible thing that has happened is not the end of the story. That's godly grief. Godly grief has faith. Godly grief says, you know what? My son is gone. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil? I have brought this upon my household. God said that a sword would never depart. Praise God's word for always being true. Now that is the kind of response that David should show here. He should get on his knees and say, this is my fault, but my, my sons, my soldiers, you men who went out and loved me and loved Yahweh more than your own family members, you are righteous and you are good and God will reward you. Now that kind of response is the kind of response that David should show. That's a, and, and it's not lacking in emotion. 
What it does is it's giving the proper emotion, the display of the right emotion at the right time. And if you think I am being harsh for poor David, this is actually not the worst case of a father whose son is put to death for high-handed sin and and, and receives the news. There's another story where a son son of Aaron is is put to death, not murdered, I'm sorry, is put to death by God on the spot. And do you guys know what Moses tells Aaron? Right? Do you remember this story? Aaron's sons go in with strange fire into the tabernacle. They're not supposed to do it. And when it really comes down to it, all they're doing is going in there with, with a weird incense. And this is what causes people outside of the world to be like, you and your God, right? He's going to kill people over incense. Well, let's set that aside for a second. Aaron's sons go in there. It's the wrong fire. They're not supposed to bring it in there. And fire proceeds from the presence of the living God and consumes them. And then standing there, Moses turns to Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, and says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now imagine, you, you're a father, here are your priestly sons, you're, you're in this new place, you're getting used to all this, all this new equipment, all these rituals, all this process, all of this, what seems to be like really heavy-handed bureaucracy, <laughs> and, and, and there your sons go in there with something strange, and they're put to death, and Moses, your brother, says, don't cry. Don't cry. Don't shed a tear. Because God will be glorified. Now, if, right, and this is where we get with Psalm 39. Can you imagine the burning inside of Aaron? The emotion inside of Aaron? I, what do you mean I can't express this emotion? Right? Modern people hear this, like, God says, do not express any emotion over this. And we think, well, that's the worst possible thing you can tell people. Right? You're going to damage this person, and they're going to have to go to a psychiatrist. Moses goes on to, David, to Aaron and the rest of his family. He says in Leviticus 10, Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. He says, get back to work. Get back to work. You're in the tabernacle. You were the priest of the living God. There are, there are people outside of the tabernacle who will weep for your children. Let them weep. Get back to work. And could you imagine the emotion in their hearts and in their minds. And now here David is, and he completely, right, he wasn't there to see it. He wasn't there in the tabernacle to hear the screams of his sons. He, he was nowhere near Absalom and what happened to him. If he would have gone with the army, he may have had a more time to deal with the emotional reality of the whole thing, but he's waiting. He gets this news, just like Eli did. And the question is, Eli was fell over in his emotion and whacked his head because he was so fat and he died. Right? He was stealing God's glory, the fattened portions out of the pot. Eli ate them and got fat. And so his sin, literally as he passes out from his over-emotion, causes him to fall over and die. And so here is David tottering. And is he going to fall over like Eli did? Or is he going to be like Aaron? And say, you know what? Are we going to accept good from him and not bad, not evil? I have a responsibility to be the king. I have a responsibility to Joab. I have a responsibility to my family. I have a responsibility to Israel. And this reality that God has brought to me is not what I wanted. But I have obedience that is required of me. Well, he takes the advice. And what we're going to see through the rest of 19 is he takes his seat, the judgment seat there at the gate, and he's going to now judge people in Israel. The, he doesn't say anything, but he goes and he takes his place. He doesn't topple over. He doesn't fall. He comes back to his senses, and he takes his position, and he does what Aaron did. He gets back to work. And his grief is there because he's silent. But he knows his position is, is there in the gate, watching the, the victorious men proceed back into the, into the city like he's supposed to. This is what he's doing. He's restored. And this is what's crazy about the life of David. He goes through all of these episodes, and just when you think it's over, he returns to God. And that's why his heart, that's why God says he has a heart after him. 
right? This, he has a heart for God the way Jesus has a heart for God. Because no matter what happens to Jesus, Jesus, his focus, his attention, his desire is always the will of the Father. And so David stumbles. Here, he stumbles worse than he stumbled in the whole story up to this point. And just when you think he's going to fall again, he takes his seat. Now, what I, the, the, the biggest lesson here is that we have an, an emotional life. God wants us to love him with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul. He doesn't want you to not have emotions. What he wants you to do is to have trained emotions. Emotions that learn, when reality happens, how to receive it, how to react to it, how to express yourself in the midst of it. God commands obedience from the heart, Romans 6.17. The vessel with that we often consider to be ungovernable is in fact governable. He wants obedience that comes from the heart. You can control what comes out of the heart. You can. God tells us what to fear and what not to fear in Luke chapter 12 and what we must and not what we must and what we must and must not delight in in Philippians 4, what we must abhor in Romans 12, what we that we must never be anxious in Philippians 4 and that we can and cannot be angry. It's not that God does not want us to be emotional. What he wants is us to show the proper emotion at the proper time. There are those who are laughing in our midst, and who's laughing with them? There are those who are weeping in our midst, who's weeping with them? There are those in our midst who who are waiting for some piece of good news, and unless this happens, they're willing to utterly reject God's reality entirely because they didn't get it. There are those of us who need to just be quiet and get a hold of ourselves. There are some of us who actually need to demonstrate, show some kind of emotion on some kind of level to, people, to the people around you. We all of us have different problems here. But what God wants is for us to govern our emotions. You know, when other people are laughing, laugh with them. <laughs> when you hear about bad news in the community, go and, 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 and say something to those people. When you see someone that's overburdened, express compassion for them. That's what Jesus did. He went around and he was always expressing, expressing compassion. He wept at a tomb. He wept at a tomb. Why would he weep at a tomb? He, amongst uh, right, more than any human being ever, knew what was going to ha- what's going to happen to death. He knows. He's like, death? Psh. Because there are some of you <laughs> who, who express it this way. You're like, ah, you know, bad things happen, but, you know, Jesus is king. When Jesus himself stood at Lazarus' tomb and wept, right? A lack of emotion is not what God wants. It's the proper emotion at the proper time. What he wants is for you to train your... Like, listen, you know, when we're in the aisle at Target, kid, you cannot just pop off and react however you want. I know that you're... Right? I know that the greatest thing in the world is that toy you just saw that you didn't know existed 30 seconds ago. Right? But what you're doing is not okay, and I'm going to now discipline you for this out-of-control emotion that you're showing. Be, right? Your, your wife is having an emotional meltdown. This happens. Right? Now, what I am not saying, please, Lord Jesus, do not go home and just say, woman, get a hold of yourself. Okay? Right? But, but sit down. Talk to her. Help her to understand. This, we're, we're, we're washing our wives with a word. We're anointing them. We're instructing them. We're teaching them. Listen, I know that you're anxious I know that you're afraid. I know that this is the last thing that you wanted to happen. I, you're, you're sitting there and you're, and you're weeping. Come alongside them and, and be in the emotion with them and then show them what they ought to be doing. Say, listen, yes, tears at this moment are, are appropriate. Let us sit down and let us weep. Let us then wipe our face, get up, and get back to work. Now that's what I'm talking about. And that is a... Sc- <laughs> I'll have a support club... For those of us who go home and try this, we will hug each other and we will weep together. Right? Because trying to get modern Christian women to control their emotions, daughters to control their emotions, this is why it's, it's been a trick played on me. I always bring up my poor sons. But Gracie, it's very easy. Uh, or We have this complicated relationship because I, I've had to spank her very little. And then I think, wait, I've had to spank her very little. Why? Because the tears flow and I'm like, oh, honey, you want a cookie? <laughs> Oh my God, let's go to, let's go to Target. Go look at some toys you didn't know existed. Now, what a, right? And, and, and this is, it's, it's helped me. It's helped me because I'm like, now I'm sitting there looking at the tears. I'm like, come on, sister, get over it. Right? Get over it. 
And there isn't a time where that's appropriate because I tell my sons, walk it off. There's an equivalent when I'm talking to my daughter about walking it off. All right. There are things that God is doing. There are things that he has done. There are things that he is going to do. And you don't know, right? You don't know why. You don't know how. Reality comes to you, and you're either going to accept it with faith or reject it. And, and, and you may reject it, but what we need to do is we need to repent of that. We need to understand it's not just about obeying the word of God. It's, a, it, it's, it's not just reviling his word. It's, we also revile reality. And we'll mock people who don't know the difference between a boy and girl because they're rejecting reality. When we ourselves say, oh, he did the one thing I didn't want him to do. And we totally lose our minds. We ourselves must be balanced and appropriate. We need to instruct those who are in our charge to be appropriate. We need to weep with those who are weeping. We need to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We need to have a heart filled with all the emotions that God wants us to have at the appropriate moment when he wants us to have them. And if you look at a story like this, you see what not to do. Right? And, and you see the, the best thing that Job can do for such a person is come right to them and say right to their face, this is what you are doing. Stop letting people's emotions be a tyrant in your home. Stop letting your emotions be a tyrant in your home. God is good. God sits on his throne. Whenever, right? Whenever the emotion takes you, the ultimate result ought to be getting on your knees and saying, listen, God is God, and I am a creature, and I am in his hands, and, and he may show me mercy, and he may not. Praise be the name of the Lord. And when you can do that, you can endure just about anything. Anything that... that that he can think of to throw at us. And this, for us, is, I think, one way for us as a community, as families, as individuals, to mature a great deal. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. I pray, God, that as um, reality unfolds before us, you know what's coming, you know what's going to happen, you know how it's going to be reconciled. Lord God, you know the things that we endure in our hearts and our minds the work and toil of our hands. I pray, God, that we would receive all things faithfully and obediently, that we would seek your face, that we would learn to number our days, that we would learn to cry out to you, that we would learn to weep with one another, and laugh with one another, Lord, and, and be um, emotionally mature Christians. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen.